Hi, I'm Angie Brown and you are listening to the Being Luminary podcast. The podcast where I sit down with everyday but by no means ordinary thought leaders to talk about being luminary in life and in work. Today, I'm joined for this conversation by Abby Bedford. Welcome, Abby. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Would you like to tell people who you are and where you work and what you do? Yeah, so um, I'm Abby Bayford, Director of Institute at the Academy Transformation Trust, which is a, a national um, multi-academy trust serving 21 academies, quite geographically diverse. So we serve 10 local authority areas and around 13,500 students, um, just under 2,000 staff. Wow. Every time I hear you say that, I think, oh, your trust is much bigger than I remember every single time. That's incredible. And your role at the Institute is is pretty pivotal, I would I would say, just because of the influence that you have on that sort of 2000 or so staff. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what your um, role has developed into? Yeah. So um, the Institute was created as um, a vehicle to drive people development so we have you know people development within each academy not so much in the other directorates um like it finance estates and so on and so what we wanted was um something far more equitable so we were not a matter of the postcode lottery and it you know it shouldn't matter as an att employee which academy or directorate you're part of you should have access to a people development offer that Um, is right for you that helps you to continue to keep getting better so that was the driver and so I lead on um, well I I led on the establishment of the institute and now it's day-to-day running um, and and really I just get to work with people and talk about their development all day so it it definitely feels like the best job in the world. Amazing it really does sound like the best job in the world and when I see you talking about it and the way you smile about it it looks like it's the best job in the world too. Yeah. So, Abby, I'm really, really excited to have this conversation with you. We are talking on Being Luminary about diversity, equity and inclusion and about bringing luminary approaches to diversity, equity and inclusion work. And when I say that, I always think it makes it sound like it's this really kind of massively grand thing. And actually, what I wanted to share with people who are listening to the podcast is that often the luminary bit is kind of shining a light on where we've come from who we are and where we want to go with the work and so I'm really hoping that this conversation we get to find out a bit more about about you and about your journey with diversity equity and inclusion work and obviously I know a bit about your journey but I'm excited to hear more and for other people to hear more as well from you so if we could start off with just thinking about where you've come from and a little bit more about your origins that would be great I wonder if you could share with us how topics, matters around diversity, equity and inclusion have manifested themselves in your personal origin story? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this and I think it started 
quite young, actually. So my dad moved from Australia in his late teens. And as I grew up, he, he'd always tell me about stories about the treatment he faced. So, you know, he'd be alienated in pubs. People didn't want to talk to him, didn't want to be friends with him. He was attacked twice. Um, and I don't think I realised it at the time. In fact, I think I've only realised this quite recently. Mm. But I think it developed in me a fear of being perceived as different. Yeah. And so I'd learned from a really young age that um, to be different was to be unsafe. Mm. And I think I carried that with me for a long time. And I was acutely aware of what it meant to stay within social norms wearing what everyone else was wearing, being interested in the same things at school and so on. Um, but the flip side of that was that I wasn't acknowledging people's differences in my pursuit to feel the same as everybody else. I wasn't recognising difference in other people. Um, and I actually thought it was really impolite and threatening to explore another person's difference. I felt as if it would be intrusive and rude. And when I reflect back on my friendship group at school, I realised I was so lucky because it was beautifully diverse. But our friendship was anchored mostly mutual interests and we never took the time to celebrate what made us so different. And, you know, as I said, I kind of grew up thinking it, it was wrong to talk about a difference. So the the acceptance of difference meant ignoring it and, and mm-hmm. kind of, I was one of these people that would say, and I'm going to cringe saying this now, I don't see colour. Yeah. And I was so proud to say that out loud. I thought that I was proclaiming equality and that, you know, everyone's everyone's the same and no one should be treated differently and didn't appreciate at the time at all how damaging those five words could be. Because mm. in my mind, I was proclaiming equality. Um, and I do wonder now in hindsight, if I was avoiding the feeling of discomfort stirred up by race. Mm. So it was kind of a, I didn't think this, but what I was essentially doing was saying, let's not make race an issue. Yeah. And now I realise how dismissive those five words of, I don't see colour, what four words? Mm. <laughs> but I do not see colour, five words. Um, I'm essentially saying I'm choosing to ignore this part of your identity. And so... That is quite a recent realisation of mine. But I think that it all came from this sense when I was younger of it is unsafe to be different yeah. um, from other people. Yeah. Um, and I, I really ignored at school the distinct beauty of a lot of my friends' identities. And um, in turn, actually, was probably silencing the voice of my black and brown friends. So it's, it's such an interesting reflection, Abby. And you're one of those people that also is so reflective and I can hear you taking on quite a lot of responsibility for your young self in the way that you were with your peers but that relationship between your dad experiencing significant abuse for being different and then you drawing the conclusion that it could be intrusive or rude I think were the words that you used to engage in discussions about difference it's really that relationship is really interesting to me I mean can you without giving yourself too much of a hard time can you kind of look can you can you dig any deeper into that what that really what the significance of those events of you know seeing your dad excluded in that way were for you and in any way forgive that tendency to want to ignore difference 
I think I can forgive myself now because I understand it mm. and I've made the connection. So, um, you know, I, I'm constantly on a journey of learning, but I'm doing the work. And I think as you do the work, you start to make links between why you behaved and in particular ways and said particular things. I think now I'm able to make this link to my childhood. For me, it feels like I understand it more. Yeah. yeah. Um. I don't know. It's um, it's a hard one, really. It just makes me sad, actually, when I think back that for some of my friends, it could. It, it, I am fascinated by people and really curious about them, and it's just it's just sad that I I didn't harness that curiosity um, whilst at school. What kind of school did you go to then? Oh, I did. Uh, so my school's been shut down. Okay. Was that because of you? No. (laughs) You might think so, but no, I had left. Um, So I was only one of four people in my whole school year that went to college. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, I didn't enjoy school particularly. Um, It was the kind of thing I just wanted to get through. There was a lot of bullying um, that, didn't always get tackled. Although, you know, I had some really fantastic teacher role models too. She put my head down and got down. But I had no idea that I was good at school. I had no idea that I had talents at all. So when I opened that GCSE envelope, it was a complete surprise because I convinced my mum and dad that they needed to help me find a job pronto because I was not going to be going to college. So I was like crying, walking to school on results. I said, I'm going to fail. And I genuinely thought it, this really wasn't me being dramatic. It's the fact that you didn't have target grades. You didn't kind of have feedback where someone would say, okay, this is where you're at, Abby, and this is what you need to do to improve. So I didn't even have an understanding of the subjects where I was particularly strong and where I needed to focus so when I opened the envelope and I did do really well um it was a complete surprise and I don't know why because I've worked incredibly hard so you know you usually do well if you've put the the hard work in but um, that was the first time for me I actually thought you know what I could actually have a career I could do something really exciting um and I I didn't even allow myself to dream until that day Mm. So your school was kind of um, a mixture of, um, well, it sounds like things going wrong around you. You, you just you described bullying and things sort of not being tackled and having to keep your head down. But you also described quite a diverse friendship group. Was it quite a diverse school that you went to? I mean, was it ethnically diverse? Was it culturally diverse? How, how was it? It was it was predominantly white British, but my friendship group was ethically diverse, right. and it wasn't a conscious thing. I didn't sort mm. of seek out people that were different to me. But again, my dad always encouraged me to strike friendships with people who were different to me, but he didn't articulate it in that way to me. So How he, he articulated. He well, for example, he would just see people and he would see that I could have a really nice connection with people. So I remember I had a really great friend called Shyster at primary school. And he said, you know, I think you and Shyster could really get on. And so mom and dad would facilitate things and talk to Shyster's mom and say, Do you know, does Shyster want to come to our house after school? Abby, do you want to go to Shyster's house? And then, you know, dad encouraged us to enter the talent show together and so on. So Looking back, he was nurturing that 
um but it wasn't I wasn't aware of that yeah your dad sounds amazing he is (laughs) he sounds really amazing so you had this really interesting diverse friendship group Mm. in this school that sounds like there was there was a bit of chaos going along around sometimes did you ever have experiences in your schooling or um or maybe after your schooling in which it really was made clear to you that you were included or excluded in which you really saw that dynamic between who is in and who is out Mm, I mean if I think about the shift first in terms of wanting to desperately fit in the shift of not feeling that way happened when I started college because um because of the fact that only four people from the whole school had gone to college I didn't know anyone at Mm. my college and that was the best thing that could have happened to me because you start taking courses that you're really interested in so you naturally start to meet people that share similar passions and interests Mm. and the friends I met at college still really great friends now and we're still really in each other's lives so that's when I started to learn who Abby was um you know really find out what kind of person I am what I'm passionate about um feeling like I could talk about my moral compass really openly with people and feel safe to be Mm. who I am Mm. I do think perhaps maybe the way I was described as a child probably made me feel like an outsider so I was reading a really interesting post on the women ed book club last week about adjectives used to describe girls and some of them really leapt off the well it was a screen not page to me like for example being called bossy Uh as a child yeah um, as opposed to like a natural leader and every time I heard that I felt like I had to temper part of myself um so you know and I also was called a talker and yeah I love to talk but it's because I love I'm really interested in people mm-hmm. and I love to communicate but I saw those two things as really negative qualities in me and things that I needed to suppress and I think actually when I started working I tried I actively tried to suppress those two qualities in me so I thought you have a tendency to be bossy Mm. you have a tendency to be really talkative and so I'd try and abstain from giving an impassioned view um, when at a meeting or volunteering to take the lead on things as well Mm. just so that people didn't perceive me as a bossy talkative person (laughs) and so that so you so you wanted to be perceived in the first instance as somebody that was kind of well quiet and well or demure demure yeah and 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 non-directive yeah what's the impact of that on you long term how long did you manage to keep that part of you suppressed in the workplace for a long time really and it made, yeah and it made me think I, I can't be a senior leader then because I am not wow. seeing senior leaders who are passionate and outspoken and maybe they were I'm not judging these people because maybe those conversations did happen behind closed doors because I didn't see it I just felt that um I didn't have what it took to be a senior because it was exhausting to hold yeah. all those opinions and views in. And yeah, it was re- really was quite an emotional drain. Yeah, that's incredible. That's so interesting to hear because 
been reflecting lately on the relationship between being luminary for me is like letting all of that out and being the person that you're meant to be and doing things in a way that only you could find to do them and and often it's like describing an energy that comes through you it's not even yours and so I'm like you Abby I'm quite talkative and I sometimes feel like it's just coming through me and I have to communicate and you get you get caught on the on the energy of something and and yet there's this pressure to be something else something other than your true self to contort yourself into what um maybe culturally is more acceptable maybe in our families of origin is more acceptable um maybe you know societal norms and often when we don't hear that voice or listen to it and we can talk ourselves we can then become really judgmental about others who don't contort themselves <laughs> And so that inside or outside a dynamic becomes one in which we then feel the need to play somebody outside of because they're not doing what we what we have forced ourselves to do, which is to behave or to be something. Does that resonate for you? Yeah, it really does. But only now you're saying it. So when I look back and I, yeah, I think I did used to think sometimes I'm holding it in. Why can't you hold it? <laughs> exactly. I'm keeping this down. Yeah. A bit of respect. You keep it together. (laughs) (laughs) So interesting. That's so interesting. So so thinking, we've talked about your family, we've talked about school a little bit. And 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 then that liberation that came for you when you went to when you went to college. What happened after college then? Where where did you go next? So I went to university. Um, I decided I wanted to be a midwife. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> this wasn't a well thought through decision at all. So I, I am quite passionate and I get quite excited by things. And I sometimes have to tell myself to just breathe and pause and think it through first. Um, but, you know, I, I think I just maybe saw Holby City and thought it looked fantastic. And yeah. there's, no, there's no greater calling than to bring a child into the world. So signed up, got accepted. Mom and dad kind of burst out laughing and said, Abby, you don't like blood. Are you sure this is the career for you? <laughs> that made me even more determined at this point because someone was telling me I couldn't do something yeah. or shouldn't do something. And then very quickly realised that this wasn't the career for me and so dropped out the midwifery course and decided to do a degree in English um, which is a subject I absolutely love um, and really enjoyed at school and college so did that and then decided to do a PGCE and got into teaching but mm-hmm. it was kind of just the fate of complete. Everyone was doing an English degree and going on to do a PGCE. And mm-hmm. I, at that point, hadn't explicitly thought about, you know, why do I want to go into teaching and so on. But as soon as I started, I totally fell in love with it. Yeah. Um, and it feels like a real accident, but I'm so glad it happened. Yeah. And so in that um, in that phase when you were studying English or when you went on to do your PGCE, was there any aspect, um, looking back, of diversity, equity, the importance of inclusion, anything that kind of touched that period of your life that you can pinpoint? 
sadly, no. Mm. It was kind of like a really silent thing in my life. Although, what English enabled me to do was explore other people's stories. Mm. And that is what I most loved about English. Mm. So again, none of this was conscious growing yeah. up. It's yeah. only conscious now I look back. But I remember reading um, poetry from women during... Um, uh, from women in Harlem, I'm trying to think of the period now, and I can't remember, but it, I just remember being so in love with this anthology that these women yeah. had written because their experiences felt so alien to me. Um, and I'm really laughing at finding out about it. Um, so, yes, although it had a presence, it wasn't a conscious thing. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't articulated. And it's so interesting because so many of us do. I did the same as you, a degree in English and then P- and PGCE. And and I, and I was reflecting recently on how those, um, there was a bit of, bit of conversation during the PGCE about how we support young people from um, what they would have called on the course Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic Backgrounds. And there was a bit of, there was bit of kind of maybe half a day on black boys achievement and you know but there wasn't really kind of deep there wasn't really much of an opportunity to reflect on race or how that would manifest in the classroom there wasn't really an opportunity to discuss how we support our disabled learners and how we work with families there wasn't anything on my course I can remember at all about the experiences of LGBTQ young people or families so it's just such an interesting training if you like because of the silence of diversity equity and inclusion possibly I don't know what your experience was it was really lacking in training I think we had a send day you know because we all know you can cover send in a day um and and uh I mean it was really interesting but I couldn't help thinking that I wasn't meeting anyone who had a special educational need or disability in this conversation. So I just remember having just someone standing in front of me telling me what it's like for a dyslexic child. Yeah. And Abby being Abby put her hand up and said, hey, are you dyslexic? And I'm not saying you have to be dyslexic to have a view on dyslexia, but he yeah. just seemed to know so yeah. well. And he said, no. And I said, do you know anyone who has dyslexia? No, and I thought, well, mm. if these are just secondhand stories, if you're mm. going to someone with dyslexia to find out, could we not just hear from these people about their experiences? So mm. I've been really frustrated by it all because I just felt like we could just cut out the middleman and mm. actually speak to people who maybe have felt marginalised or needed a differentiated approach in some way, and they could tell us firsthand. But the, mm. we didn't have that that representation on the course. And so there we have a golden thread that you just said didn't exist. Abby, was there anything at all during university, during the PGCE phase, <laughs> in which you kind of touched on issues around diversity, equity and inclusion? No, no, not at all. And yet there it is, these kind of memories that come back to us as like, oh, yeah, no, that did happen. I did have that conversation. Mm-hmm. I couldn't suppress my voice on that moment. So I raised my hand and, and challenged that we're not hearing about the direct experiences of people from marginalised groups in this moment. And I guess this is kind of, this is why I wanted to have this conversation is because I think for so many people doing the work, there are these moments that have appeared that have felt 
like there is a bit of dissonance between how we would want to be and what we are actually able to be or what we would want to be experiencing and what we're actually experiencing. And this really kind of goes on to shape the way that you then lead and the things that you then, when you are able to lead it, want to assimilate, want to incorporate, and want to want to want to deliver on. That's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't hadn't thought about it in like like that. I I'd almost thought that the work had really started when I found my voice professionally anyway at work because I experienced more challenge at that point because mm. I was I guess seeking out opportunities to challenge at that point whereas in the past it probably was just where there was an opportunity I would then take that opportunity but I, I probably wasn't seeking them out at that point mm. um, but definitely when I found my voice I suddenly started experiencing a hell of a lot of challenge. Interesting so tell us about that what have how have you or how did you begin to make diversity equity and inclusion a part of the work that you did in the world I don't think there was a defining moment where I said you know from this day forward this is mm. how I will be but it probably got harnessed when I became a senko mm. um because you know you are devoting your whole day to removing barriers or empowering young people to remove barriers too and so it was encouraging me to constantly look through the lens of the children I was serving and um, I'll just never forget one moment where and I have been lucky the schools I've worked at they have really supported the work we wanted to do but I just remember um, a young boy um, in a wheelchair turned up to our school for a tour and had the tour but then there was a whole conversation after around but he won't be able to come here because we don't have wheelchair users because of our site and I thought what we are a fantastic school and he can't come here because he's a wheelchair user so yeah but he's got a physio we've got a physio space so in my heels I started strutting around the school looking for a space we could have as a physio room found a corridor that had like an alcove really mm -hmm. big alcove and I thought this alcove doesn't need to be here went and got the site staff and said tell me structurally is there anything wrong with this area could mm -hmm. is there anything stopping us from doing this no Abby we could do this so the next minute I'd sketched it out went into the head look this is how much we think it's going to cost this would solve it we can adapt the timetable so you know we already house four departments in this one block that has a lift yeah. so let's just get the teachers to move when they teach yeah. this child you know um wasn't actually particularly groundbreaking but it really felt quite momentous at the time yeah. what was really amazing was within three years we had seven children in wheelchairs yeah. at the school and said so that for me was a really nice sign that we were paving the way for inclusion there. Mm. And, and in what ways has that approach to inclusion and to making it work rather than attaching to the ways that it can't work served you and been borne out in other aspects of, of DEI work, would you say? Um, I guess it's made me realise that there never is a barrier. It's only mm. a perceived barrier and that, we just need to be more solution focused and involve the person as well or group of people. So sometimes 
solution. I don't know. We can kind of try and find a solution independent of the person that's experiencing that problem, mm. which is a problem in itself, isn't it? So I guess I'm pretty relentless, but, but having those successes have empowered me to be relentless, really, if yeah. you face with a challenge. Yeah. And what would you say is going really well at the moment in your work, D, um, in your kind of DEI efforts? So we now have DEI people development. So we, yeah. we're creating, I hope, safe spaces for people to learn and connect. And I call them spaces because we try and uh, design our people development in a way that encourages people to engage and share and talk rather than just the presentation on DEI. So that's that's going well because it's enabling me to develop connections with people who are really passionate about this work too. And it's hard to establish who those people are. Like, what do you do? Just send an all-staff email out saying, is anyone interested? I don't really Mm. feel like that's powerful enough. So just creating spaces for people to turn up, listen, that's all they want to do, contribute if they want to, that has really helped. We've established DEI leads in each school as well just so that that work is not left to chance. So whilst they shouldn't shoulder the entire responsibility of DEI work in their school, it's ensuring that it's got prominence and that it's part of every strategy. Just constantly having someone with that remit to consider DEI really helps. Um, We've just received our Disability Confident Committed Certificate. That was great. Uh, Just a really nice recognition of the fantastic work our HR team are doing. They're incredibly committed and and we're working really well with them. And our curriculum hubs now have that as one of their strategic improvement priorities. So instead of it being a lofty vision, it's become strategic. It's become embedded into different layers in the organisation. Great. So you've taken the diversity, equity and inclusion is the way we do things, not the things we do approach. And it's I really hear you talking about it running through so many strands of the organisation, which is so great to hear and and such a kind of luminary way of doing things as well. So I'm really it's really heartening to hear that. Can you see, Abby, any hiding spots for yourself or your organisation at the moment with this work? Yeah, I was thinking a lot about this. Mm. I think thinking shortcuts is a blind spot for me. Yeah. So when I'm making quick quick decisions, I think that's often when our biases can be rife. Mm. And I've been doing a lot of reading around bias and this idea that we we rely on our unconscious processing ability to handle information in these moments. So sometimes we just haven't got the time to really think deeply about every decision we make. But that's probably where I'm most vulnerable to confirmation bias. So just being aware of that and paying more attention to that is important. Um, you know, and, and asking myself, am I drawing on any pre-existing beliefs here? Am I making any presumptions in this decision making? Am I equipped to make this decision on my own? Or actually, do I need to pause and accept that the decision won't be made um, quite so quickly? But I can have a conversation with a group of colleagues. So that's just something I'm very mindful of. I think that's when I'm most vulnerable to that happening. Yeah. Um, and approaches to talent identification as well. 
to we've com- completely changed that whole process. So we've moved talent management to talent development. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the problems with talent management was the fact that you're always singling someone out when you have talent management and identification yeah. and you're always reliant on we're not reliant on people are subject to individuals bias and so you know did, did I happen to see that person doing something particularly impressive is that even what talent is so we just realized through the DEI work we've done that that process is really flawed and we're moving towards a better model of harnessing the talents of every single person in the organization recognizing where we are where we have expertise but also where we have areas for development and supporting colleagues on that journey rather than creating this hierarchical model of you are talented, you are not talented this year. That's so, so interesting because it sounds as though you're you're then once you kind of feel like you've established an approach to doing something so the fact that it is that you have an approach to talent management you then have to go back and it's like this constant iterative process of saying yes but does it then do this thing yes but if we put that lens on are we disadvantaging somebody are we marginalizing somebody whose voice are we not hearing that's so interesting and so how how do your how are your energy levels then if you in relation to this work if it does it feel like it's insurmountable does it feel like it's relentless How, how how are you coping with that sometimes if I'm being really honest so sometimes you have that learning moment like the talent management so myself and then one of our HR colleagues who we do the DEI course but a different cohort we both met because we have regular meetings to share our learning and and I was scared to say it because we've done so much work (laughs) on the talent management and I said what do you think about our talent management process she said Abby I think we need to rewrite it. We said that, (laughs) but it just felt nice that we were in it together. And I think if you try and do it all alone, if you have a moment where you think, do you know what? We really need to readjust this practice. Okay, you might have had that thought, but you are not the only person responsible for that. But it does help if you've got people who are, who are aligned in their thinking to you, because otherwise you've got to do a whole body of work with people, mm. taking them through the learning that you've been on to. Yeah, yeah. And that's sometimes for people who are in less senior roles than you, that's the impossibility of the work, is yeah. that actually, you know, somebody who is a DEI lead in an individual school is probably not going to be having that conversation with the HR lead about unpicking the talent management strategy that has been so (laughs) so worked on yeah yeah that's a really good point I guess if if we are line managing anyone who is doing that DEI work we need to help create those spaces for them and say who do you need to talk to Mm. um, and really support them with those conversations and you know and I think that's probably then got the the kind of reflective challenge built in that everybody doing the work feels that they have a sphere of influence and is able to offer some challenge back around existing processes or systems or structures and they might not meet um change it might not be that there it's always the right time to change things in the organization but i think you've established such an interesting network of people now doing this work in individual schools 
that there could be some space maybe to look at how they then can feed into the constant iterative process of different things. Yes. And so on that point, what are your next steps? Where where are you going next with DEI work in your organisation? So we're looking at how we can utilise the experience of people with protected characteristics. So going back to the example I gave, actually, mm-hmm. EGCE course yeah. and so on. So the, what got me thinking about this is I recently interviewed um, a guy called John Simpson who shared his experience of being having Asperger's but being undiagnosed at school and the real impact that had on him. Yeah. And we've asked him to do some work with us sort of going to our schools and doing walks of the schools through the lens of someone with Asperger's Mm. to help us look at our inclusive environments. And we would like to do more of that, to really learn from people who have experienced um, situations where maybe they felt um, like an outsider, where, you know, they felt disadvantaged and getting them to look at our academies through that lens to because you only see what you see, you only know what you know. Mm-hmm. So we're really trying to broaden our horizons in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the talent development strategy because we've decided we're changing it. Starting um, so we we've we've you know started to write it. And even then that it's very co-constructed now. We've got a very diverse group working on it. The discussions are richer. It already feels better even though you know it hasn't been formally launched, but we're working towards its launch in September. And also looking at how we can um draft interview questions about DEI, so to ensure that we're recruiting allies into our organisation who share our commitment. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. So you've got a kind of some work around talent, your talent management, you've got some work around recruitment and building a staff team that is increasingly able to be allies for each other and yeah. then you've got this approach to the school environment as well and thinking about how your schools how your academies feel for people from different who, who may um, identify as having one of those protected characteristics what would you say really luminary DEI practice then would look like for your organizations and this could be like way way in the future could just be a dream that you don't believe that you're ever going to realize but what would it what would it look like for your academies that's a good question um well it's definitely i definitely think it can happen so this probably sounds a bit wishy-washy and i don't mean it to be but a collaborative culture full of people with diverse backgrounds perspectives abilities where dei is a priority where people are celebrated not tolerated mm-hmm. uh, that thing, that sort of thing doesn't happen overnight mm-hmm. um, so you know that that's the ultimate goal in terms of the culture mm-hmm. i think having real clarity as well around benchmarks so we've been doing a lot of thinking around the metrics we use and so it's easy to have diversity metrics but not necessarily beyond demographics so Mm. 
kind of how do we use the benchmarks to like gain clarity around our purpose, our progress, our impact? How can we be more holistic to measure the progress of our DEI initiatives? So, you know, holding each other to account, what's changed as a result of this initiative? How are things better? Um, I've already spoken about growth. So, you know, recruiting, developing, retaining um, with purpose and equity. And I guess people feeling like they belong, truly. Yeah. Belong. Yeah. Abby, it sounds as though you bring an incredible amount to the organisation and your passion for this work and your energy for it is really evident to me. Every time I talk to you, I'm just so impressed and so kind of humbled by how much energy you bring to the work. How resilient, strong, um, energetic, is your organisation, do you feel, in relation to this work? And I'm asking that because I'm like, I'm always really worried about what happens when you go. <laughs> How well do you think you've managed to embed some of this stuff in order that it doesn't live in you, but yeah. lives in your place of work? It's a great question. So we, we've had to actively avoid that happening by building an infrastructure Mm-hmm. So like the examples I gave of, gave of a DEI lead in every cohort, every academy, sorry, but also having people on the DEI cohort as well. So yeah. you're keeping the learning going and making sure that I am not the voice always, because, again, that that's the opposite to what we're trying to achieve anyway. So creating spaces where people lead so when we have the webinars it doesn't have to be me that's hosting the webinars giving other people that opportunity um constantly talking to each other about what it is we want to achieve so that it's no one person's pipe dream it's a collective shared dream Mm. and we all know what we're going to do about it Mm. but the, the infrastructure is key creating the people development um so you know we've got an asynchronous learning um aspect to our offer where we've got you know quite a substantial directory now that continues to grow with podcasts blogs case studies and so on that people can read and keep the learning going independent of me Mm, mm, that's great that's so great to hear so what um kind of final couple of questions what encouragement would you offer to other leaders who are starting out in this area of work who are maybe feeling like oh my word I've just listened to Abby Bayford this morning and she's you know streets ahead of where we are what would you say to them? Firstly I don't think we are streets ahead I think we are just responding to the needs of our organisation every organisation might have different priorities and needs related to the DEI work I think you need to be patient, something that doesn't come naturally to me, but it's taught me to be patient. Results don't happen um, overnight, they happen over time. I would be suspicious of anyone that told me that they'd embedded their DEI strategy um, in a period of, I don't know, months, even a year. You know, I just say that that's not possible at all. So being really, I don't know. Um, kind to ourselves accepting that it's going to take time building a community of people around you who share those values hopefully within your organization but if they're not making sure you've got a community of support around you whether that's friends and family so that you can 
you can offload, you can talk about your frustrations and how you're feeling and share your learning. Mm. That's the most powerful thing. If I read something that gets me, I share it with people so that, you know, they have that moment because it's never as powerful when you deliver that message, I don't think. You know, take them to the source of Mm. that blog where you really, truly hear someone's voice. I think that could be really powerful. Mm, So beautiful. Thank you. And you've just kind of drawn that answer together in a in a way that reflects your interest in narrative. Again, I'm my interest in narrative. And I just wanted to to thank you for going on that that narrative journey with us, which I feel like we've been through a school in which you have um, created a room for a young person whose needs really could be met in the organisation. And if it wasn't for you, who would be trying to find schooling somewhere else when you had the tenacity to ensure that they could access something right there that would be great for them. And you've taken us to your university and to your PGCE where actually this is about cutting out the middleman. Actually, this is about really hearing from people's lived experience. That's what's going to change things. And that's that's what I want to hear. And you've taken us through being somebody that didn't actually think they were going to get the grades that would get them to college and enable them to have a voice and have experiences that were truly them, that kind of, you know, finding of self, which is so fundamental to this work, finding that voice and finding self. And you've taken us through your diverse group of friends at school and the experiences of being in a school in which your voice can't always be heard because there isn't a level of safety. There isn't a level of psychological safety or even physical safety for many young people. And that's such a critical part, again, of, of what we do, of creating spaces in which everybody can be and everybody can be heard. And you've taken us through doing a talent show with your friend Shyster and yeah. your dad, Kirk, constructing these really beautiful relationships for you and other people and then you took us to meet your dad who sounds amazing <laughs> who who was from Australia and had some really difficult times being somebody who was other or different and in the UK so it's just like to me it's just this sort of beautiful golden thread all the way through to the incredible work that you do in your organisation now so of that golden thread is there a luminary in there that stands out is there a person a piece of that story that you feel you probably rely on or lean into more than you have thought I guess this my dad you know what what happened to him and the stories he's told me I until I spoke to you I probably haven't truly realized the the impact that that has had on me but also that it's given me the drive um you know to tackle head on some really difficult stuff Mm, amazing thank you so much abby i loved this conversation it was such a joy thanks angie If you would like to take a luminary approach to leading on diversity, equity, inclusion, then you must check out the Luminary Leadership of DEI programme. 
where you will learn how to lead strategy and enhance the experience of inclusion for all those who work and are served by your organisation. We enrol each quarter, so to get on the waitlist, head to www.angelabrown.co.uk forward slash luminary dash leadership dash D-E-I. I can't wait to see you there. Thank you for listening to the Being Luminary podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please do leave us a review. Each month, I will be picking one of our reviewers to get a free laser coaching session as a thank you. And remember, if you know a luminary or an everyday thought leader who would benefit from listening to this podcast or who would love to be featured on the cast, then please do share it with them. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. Original music is by Martin Ostwick. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.